Hi, welcome back to another episode of Real World Serverless, a podcast where I speak with real world practitioners and get their stories from the trenches. Today, I'm joined by Ari Palo from Alma Media. Hi, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So Ari, uh, we met at the AWS uh, Community Summit in Stockholm a while back. How have you been since then? Ah, oh, fine. Thanks for asking. Well, all things serverless, working working with those. <laughs> yeah, so we've been having some discussions of the podcast and uh, you guys are doing some pretty amazing things with serverless, I would say. Um, for the audience who are not familiar with Alma Media, can you just give us a brief introduction, what you guys do and uh, what is your role there? Sure. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll start with Alma Media. It's a European media and digital services company. And we basically operate in Finland, Sweden, and Eastern Central Europe. Uh, we have three different business uh, units that have their separate separate focuses. But generally speaking, we do all sorts of stuff regarding housing, recruitment, cars, news, entertainment, lifestyle, travel, cooking, dating, and business media, and like uh, professional training and data services. So that's a lot. That's a lot. And it's it's both business to customer and business to business. And we have something like 100 plus uh, websites and apps uh, and things like that. So it's a lot. That, but usually those areas, they have, they sort of support each other quite well. So so that's that's our sort of business case. And yeah, we have about 280 developers in total in multiple teams. And uh, then my role in the whole, whole of that is that I work in the Alma ICT unit as a solution architect. And our unit basically provides these, you know, shared services that are used across the company and APIs and also the data platform and analytics and single sign-on. And personally, because we work quite closely with all our different teams, there are many, many teams in Alma development teams. So I get to sort of share these best practices between them so i'm in some sense you could say i'm a in-house developer advocate so that's that's it in brief yeah i think and i remember you mentioned that the, some of your websites are some of the biggest websites in finland as well right yeah yeah definitely they are i mean you know we have tight competition we are sometimes at the second place and sometimes in the first place like from the finnish Finnish websites like uh, regarding how many weekly visitors there are and, and, and there are other other like uh, we have other positions there as well. So they're definitely in, in Finland. They're really high, high usage websites. And, and we reach about 80 percent, almost 80 percent of like Finnish population. So that's quite a quite a big reach here in Finland. So for some of these uh, more popular websites, uh, are they fairly high traffic? What sort of the sort of peak TPS uh, do you guys uh, see on some of your websites? Yeah, I don't have a like a, a TPS number at the moment, but but I could say that we get like a regular month would be something like 750 million page views somewhere somewhere around that. Of course, there are times when there are like some really massive news and there's high peaks and things like that, but but around that 750 million page views month. Okay, and uh, I think you mentioned that the some of that the backend, uh, some of the APIs, is uh, more and more now becoming serverless at Alma Media. As you guys have been on this really long journey, moving things into serverless, is that right? Yeah, we actually uh, well, we started with AWS in 2012, and I think our first serverless implementations were in 2016. Uh, and you know, the regular ones, of course, or the they were the usual ones, like you know. 
infrastructure glue with Lambda and, and some small APIs and things like that. But but now nowadays, the, for example, the web frontends are are implemented with uh, serverless quite a lot. Uh, for example, one, one of one of the projects that we're probably the most proud of were were a couple of years ago Alma Talent Business Unit decided to rewrite their website uh, frontends uh, again, and they have pretty, pretty big websites. Some of the biggest ones get almost two million weekly visitors, and um, they decided to go with the React.js library. And uh, performance was a quite big, uh, played a quite key role in the, in the project. And they wanted to use the React.js uh, server-side rendering. So the server uh, builds up the HTML and sends it to browser, and then the browser downloads the HTML, and then the React.js client-side framework uh, kicks off and continues from there. So they did that, you know, the, what do you call universal React.js or server-side React.js rendering? So they did that, but with actually serverless with AWS Lambda. So that was uh, probably the one of the biggest like moments that 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 they did that, and it, it's it's working still, and it's working great. So that's quite interesting because uh, one of the problems that a lot of companies run into uh, when it comes to using serverless for user-facing features like websites and things like that, especially when it comes to server-side rendering, is that, okay, uh, we are going to get co-stars from time to time. Do you guys experience that problem or do you have uh, such a constant stable traffic that you don't really see co-stars often anyway? Uh, I, I'd say that in mo most cases, uh, and in, in that previous example for it, for for example, is is that the traffic is uh, most of the time somewhat constant that there is always some traffic at least coming. So the cold start weren't such a big issue. At least it wasn't. Maybe it was a, in the start, but at least it isn't any anymore. Of course, now you have provisioned capacity and things like that. But at, at least for those websites, it wasn't. There are have been some cases that people have, for example. Uh, used like JVM-based languages like Java or Kotlin to build some APIs with AWS Lambda, and there the actually the cold stars have been a problem. But but in you know Node.js and, and and Python and Go and runtime environments that we mostly use, it hasn't really been that huge of a problem. I guess with uh, JavaScript, the CoStars has gotten a lot better and uh, it wasn't that bad to begin with, uh, especially for your case, if you have uh, pretty stable traffic that's keeping all the containers warm anyway, it's probably not that big a deal, I imagine. Uh, but are you guys doing anything special to optimize the, the, the performance of your functions anyway? Are you, you know, minimizing the packages using Webpack and things like that? Uh, there might be someone doing that, but I don't think uh, we 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 don't really use that uh, you know lambda optimization with Webpack or or similar tools. We don't use that really really much. I'd say uh, one of the things I personally use is the lambda power tuning uh, tuning uh, library that sort of triggers the, the the step functions that that also test your functions against various configurations. So I've I've used that to sort of find a sweet spot for the lambda runtime that how much memory and 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 things like that i provide to it so i, I i've used that kind of a setup but not not really then it's usually some sometimes we've done an optimization where we had like um let's call them micro functions that there are multiple really small functions and sometimes there has been a situation that only few of those get called often and rest are not called that often. But when they're called, 
called again and they are they are they have the cold star issue there uh, so we have done in several projects that we've sort of combined to move towards a bit some people might call it like monolithic lambda that the lambda function that contains a bit more logic than you're just one function actually that there can be multiple handlers and things like that so we've done that that combination trick few times to sort of mitigate that problem with cold stars yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because uh, I find that approach only works when you don't have a lot of traffic because uh, you, know, you condense the number of cold stars that's required across multiple endpoints because you have just one function that handles them. But the moment you have a fair number of uh, traffic that's spread across different endpoints, you kind of lose the benefit from doing that condensation. At least that's been my experience so far. Yeah, and, and, and we haven't done that that really on the larger traffic sites. Usually the sites sites that or or the endpoints that have the larger traffic amount they have really uh, the lambda function optimized for the for the actual uh, or the main use case let's say like that but uh, some 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 projects that have have set like several lambda functions and and not that much traffic but it's still required that there shouldn't be like a, that much cold out they have they have used that and i don't have any numbers but i've heard that it's it's it has helped them out Okay, and I guess nowadays uh, you have the provision concurrency anyway, so you don't really yeah. need it anymore. Yeah, yeah, that was a good ad- addition from AWS. That definitely that I haven't personally used used that yet, but but I, I I see several use cases for it. Yeah, so I'm really glad that you mentioned the power tuning as well. And uh, it's a bit of a shame that's a plug here. Uh, anyone who's uh, listening uh, and want to try out the power tuning app, uh, you can also try out the Lumigo CLI, which is something, which is a CLI tool that I built. Uh, it's got a command that I will deploy the power tuning step function and then run against your Lambda function as well. And you can also embed it as part of your CI/CD pipeline so that you can also optimize your functions after you run different configurations and see which the best memory allocation for your function. Yeah, yeah, I haven't used that tool much. Yeah, I haven't used that tool myself, but I have to say that I, I've, I've seen it and, and I really recommend everyone to try tools like those because that really, you can't really predict where, in which, which kind of environment your Lambda is going to actually perform the best. So actually test it out and try to figure out, figure out with those, those kind of tools. Yeah, before the before the whole power tuning too, it was pretty much a trial and error. Now it's pretty much yeah. it's very much data driven. Um, so going back to so Alma Media and how you and how you got to using serverless, I know you also mentioned that uh, you know there's a lot of APIs and stuff like that, but there's also a lot of other things as well. Uh, I think you mentioned the step functions, you mentioned a lot of data pipelines as well. Are there any other sort of particular highlights and, and the success stories that you want to share? Well, uh, of course, I, uh, as you mentioned, the APIs are the big thing, and especially for the team I work with, is that I have to say that the first time when you sort of had had this, we did those, you know, classic REST APIs with API Gateway, Lambda, and Dynamo, and things like that. But once you start seeing them serving traffic like of millions or tens or hundreds of millions uh, requests a month, and without no problem, that's a great, great, great feeling at sort of. Say to me that okay, serverless is the serverless is the way to go, but some of the uh, not so common use cases necessarily, but that are still sort of I can I'm, I'm beginning to see more and more around companies. One you mentioned is using step functions to control like SageMaker training and and how the model is used and what where the results are put and things like that. That's that's one thing. Uh, 
I don't think that uh, step functions per se are really that much used in, in Alma, but I, I'd say they are increasing. And, and generally speaking, I think there's this, I don't know who coined the term, but someone called it functionless, that you don't really use Lambda functions that much. Instead, you sort of uh, integrate different AWS services directly in some cases. So I think that kind of a stuff is probably, uh, I don't believe it in 100% that, that it's we're not going to write any code anymore or anything like that. But I guess like using more and more like AWS, you know, managed services that don't, you don't really need to write that much code to integrate things is, is probably going to increase. And, and to that point, sort of a shout out to the previous or all the, all the older uh, episode where there was the Lego guys like Sheen and Nicole that, that I, I, I heard about the event bridge actually in the same same uh, Stockholm community day that we met uh, about the Sheen's talk. He, he talked about the event bridge there and AWS event bridge. And, and I, I found it really interesting. And uh, we're just beginning to look at it and, and starting like first implementations within. And it's, it's looking good. And I, I suspect that will probably change quite a lot how we do like internal integrations between different services living in different AWS accounts that most of the time is just events being passed along. So why send an HTTP request when you can use something like a bit more robust like service that is more native to AWS and has this IAM policy controls and things like that. So that's probably something that we're going to see a lot more in Alma. Yeah, that's definitely the case. I've seen that in the more and more now as well. Um, quite a few people have now has told me this phrase, use a Lambda to transform, not to transport data. And uh, with, certainly within AWS, you've got lots of services that can directly integrate with other services. API Gateway has got service proxies. You have step functions that can integrate with SNS and SQS and DynamDB. You also have AppSync nowadays. So if all you're doing is just, you know, crud, against DynamDB data, then AppSync can do most of that for you without Hampton needing to write custom code in Lambda, which is great. And I definitely think there's more of a trend towards that. And another thing that um, this pattern I'm seeing, I'm starting to see more and more. Last week, I spoke with uh, Goiko Asik. Uh, he's also talked about how for a while now, he's had this pattern where he will have the front end talk directly to AWS DynamoDB once a client has authenticated against Cognito Identity Pool and got a temporary IAM credential. So bypasses the API gateway and Lambda all together because uh, all for, for him, all his API was doing was authentication, which IAM and DynamDB already does. So there's no point going through another layer of compute and resources and costs just for authentication. Yeah, uh, that's an interesting use case. And I, I've seen few examples around the interwebs about that. We I don't think we have done exactly that kind of a setup, but I, 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 would, I would say that we're probably not not gonna do the whole, whole like go full on with just directly clients calling to let's say a database that would be interesting if you're already doing an IAM uh, authentication there it, it's a definitely a good I, I would say it's a good good idea to do it directly uh, but again sort of coming back to that bit of a previous point I, I'll see us like using using that uh, integration from various services directly to, without the lambda as you said lambda should not be used for just you know transport it should be used for transform so that's a, that I think we're gonna be using more and more I'm already using but that's an interesting approach about clients directly calling calling let's say a Dynamo DB. 
it's definitely very different to the traditional thinking in terms of well, we need an API in front of everything, which is I think it's definitely a food for thought and definitely something that's worthwhile exploring in a lot of different cases. I feel I feel that that might be something something that people who are using the Amplify framework might be probably doing a lot more than the rest of us. Let's say that's just my assumption. I have no real facts about it, but <laughs> we see, we see. Um, <laughs> so you mentioned you've got uh, over 100 websites, you've got 280 developers. That's quite a significant size team. How are your teams organized and set up? Do you have like a centralized ops team that manages infrastructure and governance, or is everyone just responsible for their own AWS accounts and for their own websites and systems? Yeah. Uh, we have basically have well, as 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 I said, we have multiple 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 teams here, and we pretty much have quite independent teams. In you know, in general speaking, speaking not even speaking by terms of AWS governance, that we only sort of our default cloud solution is to use AWS and and for web frontends consider React JS and that kind of thing. But teams are pretty in de- independent in you know, like generally speaking, but. And there's, there's also, also they sort of have responsibility for all their own AWS accounts. But we also do have some company-wide uh, like governance that we are using AWS organizations. And uh, we have a certain way of provisioning accounts. And, and we use uh, stack sets to sort of an automation on top, top of that to sort of distribute these certain you know guardrail type of things like guard duty or cloud chain locking that's centralized locking to a specific account and things like that we do company-wide and we also have basically each team that at least each unit has like a few persons that are you know a lot more comfortable with aws and have a stronger strong experience on it and like got from the sort of maintenance side and things like that so we do have this like uh, that we do collaborate a lot that we have these ideas from the you know from the people who do more of the governance side we have that hey we'd like to implement this kind of a thing and we sort of discuss it with together and and things like that so we do have some centralized uh, governance but most it's that the teams are quite responsible for their accounts and one reason being for this is that I hate to use the word legacy because it always has uh, like some negative sound, but <clears throat> legacy in a good sense because we have long-running businesses. So we, as I said, we started moving AWS in 2012. So there are AWS accounts that have quite a long history already, and 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 there are many types of. We have, as I said, we have hundreds of accounts, but there isn't like one uh, way of setting up the accounts. There are like not well. There's one way of setting new accounts, but there's like different kind of a setups in the accounts that we have. One thing that I'd really sort of I'm almost jealous of that that of people who sort of get to the point that they are tasked with setting up an organization today, like like set up an organization with all the best practices and all the latest tools, and you can use the control tower landing zone and every every tool out of the box from AWS, but since we have a long history, we had had to come up with our own solution to various things. And that sort of uh, <clears throat> reflects in some, some some places that we can, let's say, use some some of the latest stuff from, from AWS organization side, but we, we use them and, and teams are quite responsible for their, for their accounts. 
Yeah, also, I always preferred the autonomous, having autonomous teams uh, and having some centralized, uh, I guess, teams like SRE or security teams that is a, a pool model where teams can ask for help and, and guidance and work together as opposed to like being a gatekeeper that, oh, you can't yeah. deploy unless we say so. And that, that kind of model just never works for me when it comes to a large company. Yeah, no, no, that's definitely something we don't want. That that having a separate for 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 us, we think that the teams should be. I, I guess you could say that they're DevOps teams or something like that. But that they should be really autonomous in that sense that they are the ones who develop the features. They are the ones who sort of have to think about how they put the infrastructure together, and they are the ones who have to monitor and. And, and, and operate the service because they have the best, best uh, know-how how to do it. And if if you start separating, if you have separate team that sort of man- manages the deployment and, and the production and things like that, usually it's a barrier for like development speed that your agility drops and you can't push new features fast enough and things like that. So def- definitely I, I as well prefer automated uh, not automated teams, but autonomous teams. Uh, that, but there should be always some centralized support yeah, for, from the governance side of things and security aspects, as you said. So switching gears slightly, uh, you are also a heavy user of AppSync, uh, which is something that I have been getting to myself quite a bit the last couple of months, and uh, it's really been growing on me. So what have been your sort of general experience with AppSync so far? What sort of works well for you and what hasn't? Well, sort of when getting started, uh, I think we've been using AppSync for, I don't know, a couple of years now. Uh, and um, and I, I think when getting started, it was the, we sort of made an, quite a, like um, we made a switch to GraphQL, not switch. We still do a lot of RESTful APIs, but especially my team, we sort of, Consider that okay now what kind of our APIs we were supposed to build in near future and we saw that they were probably quite data heavy and and saw the value of adding GraphQL into into the mix and um, <clears throat> then we sort of started started looking thing things and I I don't know the you know building a GraphQL server server yourself uh, you even using like the you know best possible libraries and things like that it's sort of at least at the time it it sort of felt felt like unnecessary job uh, then you know taking on AppSync, it was it has its own quirks of course uh, but it's sort of you don't have to think about that much about how how all, all kinds of you know I don't know validation logic, logic and things like that. That yourself and how you configure like uh, resolvers in the in your in your code because it sort of manages that for you. You sort of point out that this field or this query uses this function. A bit simplified, uh, of course, but in, in essence. So that was why we sort of got started with it. Why we've sort of. <laughs> Got, got, why we still keep using it and keep developing new features with it? It's I think it's it's the it, it, as some 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 people have said as as it's an like an API gateway for the GraphQL world. So it's a serverless uh, serverless product. And once you sort of the biggest benefit of serverless is I think is that once you sort of set it up first time, it usually keeps on working. So it has been keeping on working. And it's uh, nowadays the biggest GraphQL API we have is serving around 150 million uh, monthly transactions. 
So it, it has worked fine there. We haven't have had any, any issues with it. And, and even though at the time when we started using it, there were some people saying that it's slow or ha- has a huge latency, but we, we haven't noticed that. Of course, I have to say we've only used like relatively simple things with uh, the AppSync. We haven't used the pipeline resolvers or or any, anything complex like that, that we usually have either a field or a query that is assigned to a certain resolver that it's a Lambda function. And we write our Lambda functions quite often with Go language or Golang. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it has worked as fine. I think the biggest pain points with it is the sort of lack of local development or mocking the AppSync locally. I know there's some some kind of a tools in the in the Amplify uh, community or, or in the Amplify scene that you can sort of mock AppSync environment, but then you have to have the whole uh, project done with Amplify and we haven't used Amplify, so that's not really a solution. There might be some hacks around it and things like that, but at, le- at least I haven't I haven't figured it out yet. So the local local development thing is of course a bit challenging. You have to actually just think about what the event looks like and then you know send the event against your Lambda function locally if you want to test it. But that's probably the biggest uh, challenge so far I've seen with AppSync. Yeah, that's pretty consistent with my personal experience as well. Uh, as, as for the testing, I'll do the same as you. Uh, when I've got Lambda functions, which I don't have that many, most of the time it's just a simple resolver that does the DynamDB get item or put item or query. Those kind of just works. I mean, the, you can just take the template and just change the parameters and they just work. <laughs> they don't really go wrong uh, very much. So um, for those, mostly I just have end-to-end tests. So after I deploy, I hit the real GraphQL endpoints. I work through the sort of user stories, the registration process, all of that, make sure all of that is working end-to-end. And for my Lambda functions, that's where I tend to have problems. I have a lo- I have, I have local tests for my function. I invoke it against the real third-party services that I'm, that I'm talking to. Uh, could be Cognito, could be you know uh, of zero, could be whatever service I'm using. And, and those are tests locally before I deploy. But otherwise, uh, I just hit the real thing once it's deployed. And then that's most of my testing um, for GraphQL. And I think that works fine. It's not been... It's not been something that's really gets in the way of my working. Um, certainly, I don't find that, uh, like I said, the problems is tend to be in my code, not the, not in the uh, app sync. Yeah, I, just one but one one thing I, I sort of I can't say it's a necessarily negative thing about app sync, but something I've been I, I've been constantly thinking about because I sort of compare app sync to API API gateway quite a lot, which is a fair comparison because they are. One, one is for RESTful world and one is for GraphQL. And <clears throat> there has been something, I, I have had this feeling a few times that sort of AppSync is sort of lagging behind on on features and, and, and on, you know, feature development compared to API gateway. And there has been several times that I've sort of thought that maybe I should put, like may, maybe there's a use case that the, some use case could have been sold better if I've had the API gateway in front of AppSync. And yeah, that's a valid thing to do. But then you get to a situation that if you have a high traffic, high traffic website, and both of those are priced by transactions, so around $4 per million requests. So then you're doubling your transaction price just to get 
let's say one or two features from API Gateway. Uh, yeah, sure. I guess uh, there's no custom uh, Lambda authorizer. That's probably one thing that I miss when it comes to AppSync, uh, which is useful when you're not using Cognito as the authentication. Uh, but other than that, I actually find there's a lot of things that AppSync does for me. And this is speaking from personal experience working on a, pre, a very recent project where I started off with API Gateway. And then I find myself uh, you know, spending a whole week implementing group-based uh, group authentication uh, with Cognito and API Gateway, which I just get out of the box with AppSync. And, and then I spend a couple of days uh, working out uh, how to do the automated uh, document, documentation generation, the request model, and there's no response there's no response to validation which i have to do in my code which again just out of the box with AppSync. so there's a lot of things i i find myself i don't have to do when i'm just doing stuff with AppSync. uh equally i guess there's the features that um i think are still a bit missing uh one thing that's still uh i think it's really missing is uh AppSync's, uh, caching it doesn't support uh, nested resolvers very well uh, in fact, well, no, it just doesn't work because it, it can, you can't use the source uh, in the cache keys. But from talking to Ed Lima on Twitter, he says that that's something that they are actively working on. So um, I know it's coming. And when it does, then you'll be a, another big big win for us. Yeah, good, good that you, good that you <laughs> sorry to interrupt, but I decided good that you mentioned the absent caching that even though it's limits, it's still a, it's still a great feature to have that actually the caching was one of the big sort of my biggest complaints before they released it that that I, I sort of felt that that was like a really obvious thing missing missing from from AppSync and, and now we luckily have it and, and we're using it in in a couple of projects and we're in in those cases we're satisfied how how it works really well yeah, in my previous job at the zone, we also selected AppSync. Uh, I think about last year, about twelve months ago, uh, for another very high throughput scenario uh, where we were looking at AppSync's uh, subscriptions. We we're looking at the AppSync for uh, some of the just just basic query, and the lack of caching was a big one for us because this was a website that you know, the sports streaming app that uh, you know, had one point something million concurrent users at peak. So everyone polling every couple of seconds, that's gonna be expensive. <laughs> so we need caching, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and and also also it's a big like a philosophical, let's say a philosophical thing to have caching in AppSync because the caching was always the point that everybody want everybody wanted to point out if you say that okay we're gonna use GraphQL so they always had the misconception that you can't cache GraphQL requests and responses even though there are multiple places you can cache them but now having having a cache in AppSync as well was sort of the final nail in the well not the final nail in the coffin that's a really bad bad expression there but you know the final point that made you able to say that yes you can cache graphql yep and the work they did on the scaling the subscriptions that was also amazing as well because before they had the native web sockets they had a limit of about ten thousand connected devices which for us were just way 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 below what we needed but now they can scale that to tens of millions connected devices yeah. Is yeah, it's, it, they've done some amazing work on the AppSync the last twelve months. I have to say, and it has been a really joy to work with uh, for me personally on a couple of projects. So we talked a lot about uh, sort of the different things you guys are doing. So overall, what would you say are some of the biggest benefit you guys have found with serverless? Because you started your journey in twenty twelve you know, on AWS, I guess you know, using EC two, and I guess maybe at some point you decided to switch to serverless. What has been the, sort of the biggest benefit to 
Alma Media as an organization uh, from that switch? Yeah, um, and I have to I have to sort of add to there that we I think we are doing like this serverless first because we are not like hundred percent serverless. There are, for example, one team that has a really long uh, experience with using Beanstalk, and they are using Beanstalk to power their uh, front uh, like web, web applications and front ends because why why change if it's working for you and you have a good knowledge on that so so we do have all, all sorts of setups still but yeah we sort of like to think that quite a many of us are now thinking in the serverless first manner that we sort of at, at, at the beginning of a project we think that okay that the default solution would should be serverless and managed services and only if there's some really special requirement that there isn't that many these days, we should probably look into EC2-based workflows. But I think the biggest are, of course, the obvious ones, the development speed and, and, and you know, you can just, and it, it's not out of the box. Using serverless doesn't mean that you increase your development speed, but we see this as, as you know, the, because you don't have to, you know, look after your EC2 instances and, and figure out how you scale them and, and th things like that and how you monitor and how you patch and things like that. So we sort of see that the time sort of saved from that is time that can be put forth to uh, developing new stuff. That's one, one aspect. Then there's also the total cost of ownership, uh, TCO, as they say, is uh, that okay, sometimes when you start looking at serverless, it might not actually be like super cheap, depends on of what, what your scale is, but because some things are priced by the priced by the, the transaction amount, transaction amount. So it might look that, okay, this might become expensive at some point, but you sort of tend to forget in those situations that even if you used like EC2 based workflows, you still, as you grow and grow, you still, tend to get more expensive because again you have to think about how you scale things and how you operate and how you monitor and how you patch and things and things like that so that's one 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 part of them but then there's also like you get like different environments free so in traditional workflows you often have maybe let's say development environment and production environment or just a few environments but with servers you can have basically feature environments that sort of that your CI triggers from, let's say, a Git branch, like we use that if there's a feature slash prefix in the Git branch, the CI will actually create a new and totally new environment. Not in every project, of course, but in some projects. So <clears throat> because you pay by the transaction, you get the, the development and feature environments that there can be multiple. They are basically free. So that's a nice thing. Then uh, I sort of always, always say the best part of, serverless as i probably said already in the beginning of this podcast that the best part of serverless is that it usually keeps on working that with because the lambda functions that are really short short-lived uh, there usually isn't any state creep or like bugs that sort of appear after time because they are, don't really the containers don't really live that long so usually the you know the problems with serverless uh, uh, products uh, or the services that we've done in a serverless manner, they are usually er problems that arise almost directly after deployments. That there has been a, some uh, coding error that our tests and, and, and QA and something like that didn't catch 
and we only noticed it in, in uh, after we deployed. I always prefer that kind of uh, errors uh, like that happen, that deployment basically breaks something. I prefer those kind of uh, errors always over the ones that happen suddenly sometime later on, because those are usually the weekends and holidays and things like that. So so I, I, I that's that's why what like the service monitor, once you set it up, it usually keeps on working. And uh, then uh, also I'd say that that one one thing I I I've seen I actually have a good example on this is that uh, using serverless it sort of makes the blast radius as they call it uh, smaller. So if you have some kind of a problem, it doesn't necessarily mean that the whole system crashes. It, it often is is that a one request or a few requests doesn't work that they sort of error in some way. We had a few years back we had this serverless which was uh, a sorry service that was on ec2 and i think it was in b install and it basically provided for our front ends that showed something like weather data and things like that if if a user gave the location it would resolve uh, you know a city and uh, maybe a street or something like that not street but you know city and country and 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 uh, the state and things like that uh, from it and <clears throat> And we used third-party service there, but we did some data processing in between. And then July actually is a quite a uh, quite a popular like a basically like quite a popular vacation month here in Finland. Basically, <laughs> some could say that the whole whole country is closed during July. So people tend to go to countryside and to coast and and to islands and things like that, places that don't necessarily have an exact address. So when people used our services that had this like uh, geolocation ser service in the background for you know weather and stuff like that, so there was a coding error in the system, and if the third-party service uh, didn't uh, like return an like a valid address, the system sort of <laughs> failed totally and that resulted that actually because there was enough of those failing requests the whole whole uh, service went down and sort of a learning from that was that okay that was a coding error from our end uh, should not have happened in the first place yes but coding errors do happen uh, but if it were a serverless uh, implementation only the requests that had been like only the request that didn't have the valid uh, address would have been uh, affected. So that was what we sort of came up from it. So that it, it can, in sometimes it can so, sort of limit the blast radius also. So that's one benefit of serverless that doesn't get you know talk about that much. But there are several benefits that we think that the it just keeps working. The total cost of ownership, and we feel that it you know allows us to develop stuff faster. Those are the points. Yeah, that built-in isolation is, uh, I guess, uh, like I said, a bit of an under-hyped feature of a serverless that if something goes wrong, it just affects one function or one container running your code, and it just automatically recovers from that failure, the next request that comes in anyway. Um, so what about things that didn't work quite well? well are there any, what are some of the sort of biggest uh, pitfalls or mistakes that you wish you knew when you started? Yeah, I guess all sort of comes down to that when you're when you're doing uh, when when you're using serverless uh, in, in mentality in your in your product development, 
it also sort of boils down to good planning. Uh, <clears throat> it's and it, it's it's it sometimes can be hard, especially when you're starting. Especially when you're starting, it's you can't always know all the sort of dependencies. Like for example, cost-wise, there can be some uh, not hidden costs, but costs that are hard to anticipate if you're inexperienced in serverless. We've been sort of uh, so so showing that ef effect in couple times. I can give you two concrete examples. Uh, the first one probably being the CloudWatch, uh, and, and, and actually the second one also relates to CloudWatch. But the first CloudWatch problem was that we were actually we had a Lambda function that was called quite often, and uh, it uh, used the CloudWatch metrics API to publish a metric. So it called this uh, CloudWatch uh, put metric data API or operation, and that's actually somewhat costly operation and because we were talking i don't remember was it tens or hundreds of millions of uh, uh, requests per month so we did that metric operation put metric data operation each request that ended up uh, costing like it was almost 60 percentage of our monthly bill was just because of that put metric put metric data operation so you have to sort of think about in, in serverless, every, almost everything is uh, priced per transaction. So you sort of have to think about the dependencies of these transactions that if you're calling Lambda, Lambda for X amount, you're, what things are the Lambda calling and things like that you have to take into account. Uh, <clears throat> that's almost a sim similar kind of example where the uh, culprit was Lambda and CloudWatch was that we had uh, uh, somewhat uh, uh, popular API, and uh, we had uh, cloud, uh, sorry, Lambda at the edge functions in, uh, attached to the CloudFront distribution there. And basically, those functions did some validation for the data before sending it to the backend because the backend operation was a bit more expensive. So we thought that, okay, let's do it on the edge. And um, we noticed at, at, at some point that hey, why our CloudWatch bill is again quite uh, uh, quite quite expensive? Like what's causing it? We dig through and found out that okay, we had forgotten uh, like uh, debug locking in like debug locking on in the uh, Lambda at the edge functions. So basically, all the time uh, the Lambda at the edge function was uh, invoking it, uh, it locked the the payload event, which is can be somewhat massive, especially coming from CloudFront uh, events and, and, and other things as well. So <clears throat> that ended up actually causing quite a high CloudWatch bill. So always uh, like check what things are you locking and use like locking framework or locking library. I always say that always use locking library because it's easier than to define that, okay, if uh, production is uh, sorry if an environment is production then maybe only lock like errors and maybe warnings or something like that and uh, then in other envi environments like staging or development or feature branches or what have you you can then do all the debug locking and we actually have a little trick there that in production in some apis you can put if it's a graphql api or in rest you can put it in header you can put like a, this one debug flag so you can get like a like full logs for the even for the production uh, request for single request but you don't have to lock the everything in a in a larger scale so being aware of these like 
again, I won't want I don't want to say hidden cost because they are they are documented in the AWS pages, but they are sometimes quite hard to understand, especially once you're like first time coming to serverless. So those I think have been the in the, the challenges. Yeah, the CloudWatch cost thing, that is, uh, that is something that definitely a lot of people got hit. Uh, I've seen people spend 10 times more on CloudWatch uh, logs alone uh, to compare to what they pay for Lambda and API Gateway uh, because of the whole debug logging getting, uh, getting forgotten and things like that. So nowadays, uh, what I typically do is uh, I've, got, I've got some libraries I've developed which uh, in production you would be logging at uh, error or info or warning or whatever, uh, but we sample the debug logs uh, as say 1% of invocation so you do always still have some population of your debug logs in case something happens and you hopefully will still have debug logs to help you and also work with um, correlation ID so that uh, if you've got a, a whole core chain of function calling other functions through SNS, SQS, or whatever, um, those decisions get passed along. So every function along that core chain will respect the decision the first function made regarding should we enable debug logging for this invocation. Um, so that really helps a lot in terms of keeping your, your cost in check, but also still giving you really good uh, visibility. And got another horror story about uh, CloudWatch metrics. Um, you know how CloudWatch metrics uh, counts every distinct combination of dimensions as a unique metric, and that's it's like twenty cents per uh, per month per metric. And I heard of one company that was by mistake uh, including the, the request ID as a dimension. So every request was a unique metric that was so well so bad that uh, yeah the, the bill for that company was um, was horrendous those are those are really it's, it's a real real shame i feel bad bad for for that kind of a, because again the you know mistakes happen you can we are all humans and and i can say we have had a case where we had a uh, lambda function trigger from S3 and then updating the same object that wasn't cheap either I can say but oh recursion but, you know recursion. yeah yeah <laughs> exactly yeah I've seen those um, <laughs> yeah but that's that's like um, one thing that you should really really do like that that was something that wasn't like that that could have been like caught with you know proper code review so so always try to you know and especially when you're like if, if you're starting, like let, let's say your company that's switching the serverless and you have your team, team uh, figuring out, it's it's good idea to always do like good code reviews, not because you sort of, not, it's the main point isn't that did your teammates screw up or something, that's not the point. The point is to learn from others and then occasionally you might spot actually something that was a mistake because we're all human and we do mistakes. So, so that is something that I always try to tell that people, especially working with serverless and are new to serverless, that that it's a complex. Even though in some sense, some sense serverless is super easy, but it can also be super complex. So when you're learning, don't do it just alone. So use use your teammates and 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 do it together. And there are a lot of articles and and and, and stuff and, and out there. So. Get to re re read read and learn, and don't just jump right into it. I, I have for for example, I have personally, I'm a bit of a, I can't really wait to get started. So I often start start doing and then do something and do a mistake, and then I'm like, okay, I should have probably read the docs properly. This is totally explained there. So. <laughs> 
Yeah, Joe Emerson, the, who actually interviewed on this podcast, uh, he was one of the first people I interviewed on this podcast. Uh, he once said that uh, you, know, you know all these uh, articles you read on Medium about uh, serverless lessons learned and how it's you know, they made some really bad mistake. Uh, it can always be summarized as uh, someone who's spent two weeks working and two days researching and could have been a lot better yeah. <laughs> has spent two weeks researching and then two days working. Yeah, yeah exactly so, exactly so. Yeah, yeah, and uh, for that uh, recursion thing, uh, I actually ran into that uh, my previous company at the Zone, and what we ended up doing was uh, as part of our suite of tools, uh, which is open source, called uh, the Zone Power Lambda Power Tools. We actually have got a middleware that uh, along that passes the the count in terms of the number of invocations in this code chain as a correlation ID and incremented it automatically, so that uh, if you ever run into a case where your code chain gets longer than a default number we set, which is I think like ten or something. We just stop the invocation and tell you that it's a potential, um, a potential infinite recursion. Um, that's yeah. how we are nowadays uh, sort of trying to catch those, uh, I guess, uh, accidental infinite recursions uh, early, so that you don't find out once you have, you know, five million, five billion yeah. invocations uh, for the month. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's useful. We'll definitely have to check out check that tool out. Um, so I think that's everything I wanted to cover uh, for this uh, episode. Is there anything that any sort of personal projects, any books that uh, you're writing about that you'd like to tell us? Um, not um, not at the moment. Actually, as, as I said, it's uh, summer is coming, and my mind is mostly about the summer vacation. Thinking mostly <laughs> about the summer vacation already. But I'm actually uh, sort of I've been blocking in previous years and I've actually started thinking about like I have already a few blog posts waiting. I, the only thing that is actually preventing from me is, is pu- preventing me from publishing is that actually I need to first like uh, develop my own website because I'm a purist in that sense that I don't want to publish anywhere else. So that's that's been the re- reason. So may- maybe, maybe like after the holidays, I will be uh, posting more about uh, some things even more about serverless and AWS and, and all sorts of stuff related to development. So I think that's it. So, But I don't have a, it's probably going to be at aripalo.com address, but it's not, doesn't really, really, there's nothing at the moment yet. So don't go looking there, but, you know, follow me. So I'll probably say something once I have some content online. Okay. And how can people find you on the social media? Yeah, I'm basically everywhere. Uh, first name, last name. So Ari Palo, basically everywhere. Ari Palo. Uh, so in Twitter, I, I share stuff related to this, and and also feel free to connect me with in LinkedIn if you're interested in serverless and and infrastructure and code and things like that. So you can reach me on those platforms, and I'm probably speaking in. Uh, well, the situation is what it is, but at least maybe in some online conferences later in the year. Or so. Okay, sounds good. I will uh, make sure I'll put those uh, links in the show notes uh, when you're ready to, sh- to, sh- to share your new brand new blog with us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's been a pleasure having you today. And uh, you know, take care and uh, start thinking about your vacation, hopefully when, yeah. <laughs> when, the, when, uh, when things come down a little bit and we can all go and travel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah, it's, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for the in- invite here. Always like to talk with other AWS and serverless enthusiasts. Cool. Take easy, man. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. (laughs) 
That's it for another episode of Real World Serverless. To access the show notes and the transcript, please go to realworldserverless.com. And I'll see you guys next time.